Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. N.T. Wright once described the stories leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection as breadcrumbs or markers on the side of the road. Little ahas or little epiphanies on the way to the big aha, Jesus' death and resurrection. In the season of epiphany, the season of light and hope, we see the wise men coming to bring gifts for the king of kings. We hear the words from the Father coming down from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus healing people, restoring people back into community, bringing the dead alive. There are clues in putting the puzzle of the kingdom of God together, a kingdom that has come near in Jesus Christ. Mostly, we only see a portion of the puzzle. Sometimes we are lucky and we find a corner or a border piece that provides clarity, but often we are in life with random pieces trying to see where they fit. In the gospel stories, the transfiguration acts as a linchpin between Jesus' ministry and his turning to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. It is no wonder that this story acts as a liturgical linchpin between the season of Epiphany and the season of Lent. I have heard and probably have delivered several sermons where I have said something like this about the transfiguration, that we have to get off of our mountains. But what Peter sees and experiences on that mountain changes him. He fully realizes what it means for God to come and dwell among us, and the one that he's been walking around with for months is none other than the Lord of heaven and earth. Peter realizes that Jesus is the bridge between what he knows in this world and what he yet cannot comprehend about the world to come. As Jason Michelli writes, it's not about going back down the mountain, but rather the Christian life is sort of an ascent, venturing further and further up the mountain to worship and praise the transfigured Christ, and in doing so, becoming transfigured ourselves. If we are not transformed, what's the point of going down the mountain? We'd be down there no different than anyone else, which leaves the world no different than it has always been. We live in a skeptical age, and maybe sometimes with good reason. But what happens when our skepticism blocks our ability to see God at work in our life and the world around us? Several years ago, there was a speaker um, who came here to Christ Church whose central premise was that God can't or God won't. Unable to deal with what the theologians have wrestled with since always, how do we understand the hiddenness of God? Or another word of saying, how do we understand it when God doesn't act? How do we handle it spiritually and emotionally and physically when God does not show up in the ways that we want and expect? 
And because we are so driven by that question and that fear that God may not show up when we need God the most, we fail to appreciate the times that God does show up. The New York Times of all places recently wrestled with this very question. Molly Worthen, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, asked this very question about God showing up. She shares the story. Candy Brown was nine months pregnant when her husband had a seizure in the middle of the night. I went to bed, and when I woke up the next morning, I was in an ambulance, he said. Two and a half weeks later, a newborn in tone, toe, they got his diagnosis, a brain tumor called geoma. He provided the New York Times with medical records to support this account. He was 30 years old. Chemo, radiation, and surgery don't statistically prolong the lifespan that I had, and there was nothing to do but get ready to die. Doctors prescribed no treatment other than anticonvalescent medication to manage symptoms. The Browns grew up in a Christian family, but not the sort that expected God to intervene in modern life. Still, he was desperate. He started traveling the country, seeking out Christian healing revivals, dragging along his wife and baby daughter. I needed to find out what was going on, he said. If there was any reality to it, I wanted a miracle. Candy Brown recalled more disturbing details. The morning after her husband's diagnosis, they began to pray together. But mentioning the name of Jesus seemed to trigger a frightening physical response. Josh shoots out of bed, starts turning somersaults, she said. I'd say, try worshiping Jesus, and he couldn't say the name of Jesus. I was thinking of the herd of pigs, she said, recalling the unlucky swine that run off the cliff by a demon possession in the Gospels. He was hoarse, and he was exhausted. For that 45 minutes, there was such a palpable evil presence in the room that hated the name of Jesus If I had ever doubted whether Jesus was real, I couldn't now. Some people reject such notions because we demand proof. We decry the lack of double-blind studies of the Holy Spirit. And yet, and yet we as Christians say that God is active and alive in the world. Scholars estimate that 80% of Christians in Nepal come to faith through an experience of healing or deliverance from demonic spirits. Perhaps as many as 90% of converts who join a house church in China credit their conversion to faith healing. In Kenya, 71% of Christians say they have witnessed a divine healing according to a Pew study. And even though at relatively skeptical United States... Still, 29% of surveys, those surveyed said that they had seen a miracle. She says, we can quarrel with the figures, but we are talking about millions of people who say something otherworldly happened to them. And yet, most secular people and even most religious people are oblivious to this or shrug off miracle stories as a principle, as motivated reasoning, a hallucination. A fraud. In other words, when people see a transfiguration in their life, we tell people, get get off that mountain. 
Or even worse, we tell people, there's no bother even trying to go up the mountain. One doctor from Uganda says that people say God only works when you have faith. I don't think that's true. God sometimes overrides our unbelief and high-mindedness and proves himself to be God. He doesn't need our faith to be God. We are often suspect of things that we cannot control or explain. Some of y'all have maybe seen the revival at Asbury. What appears to be a spontaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon people who continue to worship nonstop. And the various reactions of people discounting whether this is somehow real or not. Discounting whether this is authentic or not. We too often sit and we wait like people who are cross-armed and wondering why nothing has fallen into their hands. Are we even willing to open ourselves up to the possibility that God will show up in our life? Molly Worthen concluded her exploration of miracles with this reminder. For Christians, she says, this is about a spiritual maturity to remember that miracles are not the point. Going back to N.T. Wright, they are little breadcrumbs along the way or signs on the road that we are walking on. Miracles are signs meant to help humans see the greatest miracle of all, the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's ultimate intrusion into an ordinary life. An intrusion which Revelation says will eventually wipe away all tears. For truly, as the epiphany season lets us know that our only hope is to be found in Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a Moses and Elijah appeared with them. That is to the disciples. Their appearance alongside Christ, their contrast with the um, incandescent Christ, is not for Christ's sake. It's for them, for the disciples, and for our sake. Notice, and this is the key to understanding this epiphany, and it's why we as the church, as St. Paul said, have nothing else to proclaim but Christ and him crucified, that the giver of the law, Moses, and the prophet of the law, Elijah, standing there on the mountaintop alongside Jesus, God announces to those who will listen, listen to him. The object of God's verb is singular. God does not say, listen to them. God does not say, listen to him also. God does not say, listen, he can help you obey the things that Moses and Elijah taught you. It's not a him, it is a him, not a them. God proclaims to the disciples and to us that our task is to listen to him, to listen to Jesus. The mistake that Peter makes wanting to build the three tabernacles on the mountain, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus, the the mistake is not that he wanted to preserve this transcendent experience. Peter's mistake was thinking that Elijah and Moses are Christ's peers. They are not his equals. Peter's mistake is in the implication that the law and the gospel are the same thing. They're not. Peter cannot make three tabernacles on the Mount of Transfiguration means that we as Christ's church 
do not have several different messages to announce. We only have one message, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter cannot build three different tabernacles. means that we as Christ's church do not have several waves of salvation. We have one. Faith in God's Son, who was promised by Moses, prefigured by Elijah. We only have Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. Amen. Amen.